uh, quite the, the story we get to hear and be reminded of if we've already heard this. I've said before, sometimes it's, it'd be fun to be a brand new Christian and not know a lot of these things and, and encounter them for the first time. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 18 and following. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of the servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way. And this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw. And behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you've taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Please be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word today. Help us to receive it uh, the way you want us to receive it. May your Holy Spirit do the work that needs to be done as we interact with your sacred text. In Jesus' name, amen. You ever heard the phrase, you plus God is a majority? You plus God is a majority. Uh, I grew up, uh, I guess the, the moral majority was on the rise, and there was these political uh, things joined with Christian things, and they were going to get a majority if they could just work hard enough. And I remember just seeing that phrase, whether on a Christian t-shirt or a bumper sticker or in some bookstore or something, you plus God is a majority. 
And I talked with my mom about it. I said, boy, that really is something cool. I never thought of that. Me plus God is a majority. And she reinforced that. And she was glad her little boy was thinking of, you know, Christian things and spiritual things. But the way they raised us was actually more accurate than you plus God is a majority. You plus God is a majority, that is true. But can I say one that's even more true and more accurate? It's this. God is a majority. God is a majority. You plus God is a majority, yes. But even without you, God is the majority. So here's a cricket illustration for Tina and Avishek. And, and Tina, you'll have to tell me if I'm pronouncing this right or not. But the greatest cricketer of all time, not the greatest Indian cricket player, but the greatest of all time. They have a good one now named Kohli, who's kind of waning a little bit. But uh, Sachin Tendulkar. Sachin Tendulkar. Tendulkar is the greatest ever. Everybody says that. So let's say Sachin Tendulkar, in his prime, came to visit our church. And he walks in, and we don't really recognize him because we would recognize even Joe Namath in the old days because he does commercials. We'd recognize some of these uh, famous ones that we've seen from some of our sports. But if Sachin Tendulkar walked in in his prime, you'd know who he was. And we found out who he was. So he's here with us today. And it's a sunny day, and it's a warm day, and he's going to take us outside, and we're going to play some teams. We're going to play a little cricket. We're going to learn how to play cricket. Some of us may know a little bit of the rules, but we've not ever held a cricket bat. But Sachin Tendulkar, he's going to be here, and he's going to play cricket with us. Now, whose team is going to win? (laughs) Whatever team he's on. What if he even said, I will take you all on by myself. Uh, if he wanted to, he would win. Uh, he'd bowl that thing, and you know they, they run, and they hit their, the line just right, and they bounce that thing up, and, and he could hit that wicket every time. We, we'd be done. And then he goes to bat, assuming any of us could even get it within range. He would just bat and bat. He'd hit a century over and over again. Uh, you plus Sachin Tendulkar is a majority, but the fact of the matter is, He's the majority. So we're playing a friendly game. He's bowling it slowly. He's trying to teach us. He has goodwill toward us. He's not trying to dominate and win. He's wanting to improve us, and he lets us be part of it. And he, after a while, we start playing. We kind of enjoy it and all that in a friendly game. But let's say, let's say these Baptists from next door crash our party. Let's say they say, they say we see you out here. We think our theology is better than yours. We think our church sign is better than yours. And we think we can beat you at any sport because we just think we're better because we're the Baptists and you're just the Presbyterians. You name the sport and we'll play it and we'll dominate. And we say, all right. They don't recognize old Tendall Carr either. We pick cricket. Uh, who would win that game? Well, our, we, we, we would win. We've got Sachin Tendulkar on our team. And he might let a couple of us bat first, a couple of you that he has spotted as, and he might, that he's been teaching. He might let you. But in the end, he's on our side. We win. If we just say, we're just going to sit back and let one guy play against all of you, 
we still win. God is a majority. You can say you plus God is a majority. We say God is a majority. Be like playing basketball with Michael Jordan in his prime. Same, same situation. Um, no, no contest. What if the stakes are higher? What if it's in life and death? What if it's freedom if you win, death if you lose, and it's cricket? Hey, Tyndall Carr is our guy. He's on our team. It's him plus us. We're going to win this thing. We can say you plus God is a majority. Or you can just say God is the majority and you better want to be on God's side. Do you know that combined, this is something you don't know about me, combined, me and Jeff Bezos have more money than any other American. Combined, Jeff Bezos and me. Combined. You didn't know that. You probably think you're paying too much now for the pastor's salary because me and Jeff Bezos together have more money than any other American. Something else you didn't know about me. Combined, Bill Belichick and I have six Super Bowl coaching victories, and no one could equal that. Even take two great coaches like Tom Landry and, and um, uh, Vince Lombardi. Take those two, and then take me and Bill Belichick. We've won more Super Bowls. Think about that. Well, I would give credit probably to Belichick. Point is this God is the majority. Submit to God. Trust God. This is who you want to be with. God is God. Get on God's side. Last week I said, and somebody said they hadn't thought of this, but when Jesus comes back on that white horse, do you want to be on your white horse riding behind him or do you want to be on the receiving end? I said, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> and I said, wow, uh, I hadn't either till, till, to phrase it that way. But think about this. You have a, a decision, the Bible says. The Bible says uh, all the way through from the, the, the scriptures, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Uh, New Testament, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And we understand from a good, solid, biblical, Calvinist, reformed standpoint that there's a level at which it's God who's at work and God who does things. We're going we're to get into that in the sermon. But here's the thing. You have a choice and you're going to be responsible for it. You and God, uh, who's going to win against the forces opposed to God? And so we see that in this passage this morning. We see this uh, point about God being a majority And the larger point for our sermon series is that God is still on the throne and you do not have to be afraid. We are afraid, but we don't have to be afraid when we get our perspective right. And so this is another sermon, another text helping us to try to uh, encourage us during what could be uh, very discouraging, fearful times. So looking at the text, here's a backstory for this passage. Uh, Sometimes people get Elisha and Elijah confused. So there was Elijah. He was uh, one of the first of the great prophets. Uh, He was the one who was on the mountain opposing uh, Jezebel and Ahab, called down the fire from heaven, uh, heard God in the still small voice. Elijah uh, 
God told them to say there will be a famine in the land, and there was a famine in the land, and they were searching for him. He was not the only Christian, the only God spokesman. Times it felt like it, but he was the prominent one that the Bible tells us about. So Elijah was, uh, his ministry that God wanted him to have was finished, and he was going to head to heaven. And he had Elisha was the one that God had tapped to take over that role. There were prophet uh, uh, schools. There were things like that. Elijah had opposed Jezebel. Elisha had other foes to fight against. And so God's hand was on Elisha. Elisha was there when Elijah was caught up into heaven in a chariot of fire. And we see that uh, earlier in 2 Kings. So Elisha is there as, as the, as the uh, heir apparent, as the next guy. And we see three instances in this passage Three times where prayer intersected with the idea of sight and vision. We see it in verse 17, and then in verse 20, or then in verse 18, and then in verse 20. The first time where there was a prayer, we see spiritual sight added to physical sight. It come down. God had supernaturally told Elisha where where the enemy was going to be. Elisha told the king. The king dodged the enemy to the point where the the king of Syria said, who's the spy? Somebody in this room is disloyal. And they said, no, it's not that anybody in this room is disloyal, O king of the Syrians. It is that God speaks to Elisha. Elisha knows even what you say in your bedroom. And he tells the king, And so the king says, we've got to get Elisha. If our raids are going to be successful, we've got to get Elisha out of the picture. Were they going to kill him? Were they going to capture him? Sometimes in those days they would capture people and they'd they'd cut off their their big toes and their thumbs and they'd poke their eyes out and and leave him alive and treat him in that way. Maybe that was the fate that was there for Elisha. At any rate, we see this king uh, send like overkill. As like, like he sets up like you'd set up a cannon in your house to, to, to get that mosquito that keeps buzzing and waking you at night and, and blow through the walls to try and get that. He sends a whole army and a whole host against this one guy. And people laugh about that, but hey, he's taking it serious. No room for error here. We've got to get him. And so it says he sent a whole great army. Uh, the description is uh, verse 14. He sent their horses and chariots and a great army. And they came in by night, and they surrounded that city. And that servant of the man of God rose early in the morning, a young man, maybe somebody, maybe it was an internship type situation where he was learning about God. Maybe he was the one who would be next in line, or whoever he was, but but the Bible calls him the servant of the man of God. And he rose early in the morning, and he went out. Behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what will we do? He saw with his eyes something that was real. He didn't see an illusion of an army. He saw a real army. And he said, Alas, what will we do? The first thing that Elisha said to him was good words that we all need to be reminded of. He said, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid uh, is echoed throughout Scripture. 
God's people are told in so many times and places and ways, do not be afraid. When I didn't have in my notes, I'm thinking all of a sudden one that just occurs to me is, is where it talks about perfect love casting out fear. But uh, we see a hundred years later in Second Chronicles, Hezekiah saying when he's surrounded by the king of Assyria, and, and King Hezekiah says to his people, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not be afraid. There's something going on, and we tend to be fearful. And boy, we see the results of people who don't know God. Uh, Paul and I talk about uh, some, some of the, just the, almost the hyper-reaction in this day and age, just the utter fearfulness, and it's people afraid to die. And that's why they can turn and get so angry at somebody. You put me at risk. You are going to make me die. You don't care if I die. And to the Christian, God always says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. 1 John 4.4, the writer says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I learned it from the King James. He who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. And so there's something to fear, but it's not the world. It's not the Antichrist. It's not... Uh, COVID, it's not things like that, this monsters that we make and these stories we tell to ourselves. We are wise, we do what we can, we avoid fights, we avoid trouble, we don't have a death wish, but you do not have to have the same kind of fear that someone who does not know God has. He says, don't be afraid. When God was getting ready to do the greatest thing that God did, this great spiritual battle, uh, the greatest thing God did was wrote himself into the script. God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, became uh, somebody says not just fully God and fully man, but you could say it maybe even better, perfectly God and perfectly man. And when Jesus was getting ready to come into the world, what was the, the leading um, Words that God's emissaries spoke when they announced this. Here's Joseph getting ready to get married uh, to Mary. Turns out she's pregnant. He's trying to figure out, do I put her away privately? Because I know I'm not the dad. Uh, Do I uh, have this big public divorce thing? What's going on? She didn't seem like that kind of a girl. The angel appears to him to tell him it's going to be all right and that he, he's okay and that Mary's okay and that the baby's going to be fine and in God's plan. The first thing the angel says is, fear not. The angels come when that baby gets born and the sky has the angels in it. What do the angels say to the shepherds? Fear not, for I bring you good tidings of great joy. Fear not is God's word for God's people Therefore, if you are God's people, that is God's word for you. Fear not. Do not be afraid. Elisha said to his servant when his servant saw 
all the surrounding army that was coming to come and get them. Fear not. Do not be afraid. And then he said some good words, but he said a prayer. But listen to what he didn't say. He didn't say, hey, servant, just trust me on this one. I can see things that you can't see. Just trust me. Fear not and trust me. I'm a little more spiritually insightful than you, and I can see things you can't. For instance, I saw Elijah go up in that chariot of fire, and for instance, I saw this and I saw that. So you just trust me, you little lesser one. He didn't say that, did he? He said, fear not. And then he said something else. He didn't say, you're just dumb. He didn't say, are you sure you're a Christian? Uh, You don't have the faith? Some people say that. He prayed that the young man would see what what he had seen. He said, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Understand that there's more of us than them. And then Elisha prayed in verse 17, and he said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And what did God do? God opened his eyes that he may see. And what did he see? He saw mountains full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The enemies of God, who were therefore the enemies of Elisha, were not going to touch him without the express permission of God. And as a result of Elisha's prayer, the servant saw that, and the fear was gone. An important point here that we'll cover later uh, is that it is God who opens spiritual eyes. Elisha didn't say, you're fired. I'm going to find me a servant with a little more spiritual depth and insight. He prayed for him. God, please open his eyes. And God opened his eyes to see the spiritual beyond the physical. Come to the second instance where prayer interacts with sight, and that's in the very next verse, verse 18. So he prays. The servant sees the mountain full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. In verse 18, when the Syrians came down against him, so it doesn't mean that they saw the chariots of fire. They didn't see it. They were blind And they came down to do their job. (laughs) Maybe it was a deal where do your job or get killed. (laughs) Maybe it was do your job. It's a bounty hunter type situation. Maybe they'd get rewarded and their families would have nicer robes and palaces or whatever back in Syria. We don't know, but they came to do their job. And when they came to do their job, Elisha prayed to the Lord and he said, please strike this people with blindness. And what happened? They were stricken with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. Um, you say, that's far-fetched. That's just a myth. I can't believe a story like that. Can you <laughs> Fairy tales, kitty stories. I'm not going to believe that those things can happen. Well, wait a minute. If you're a Christian, you believe a pretty whopper of a story in the world's eyes. You really believe that a God created all this? You really believe that a God uh, loved his people so much that he, he wrote himself into the story and came down and died for the sins of his people and that transaction happened and God was pleased and the wrath of God the Father poured out on God the Son? If you can believe that, then what's it to you that God can't strike somebody blind? You believe that God created eyes and eyesight 
Uh, can you believe that God could cause blindness? You have to, or God is not God. So we accept it as a fact, this story. It's God who's active in the affairs of people, a God who created eyes and vision. This is the God we believe in. You know, I believe that someone, because I've seen it in, in real life, I've seen somebody who's like a martial arts guy. They come out, they got that black belt, but it's got others, you know, it's like second, third, whatever, black belts. And here's a guy holding all these bricks. And the guy can go, hi or whatever he says, and he hits it with his head, and all those bricks crack. If I believe that, because some guy can be trained and be good enough and skilled to do that, then I believe that he can take the pencil in my pocket and, and break that too, right? If you believe all the stuff about Jesus on the cross and salvation, if God's put it in your heart to believe that, then these Old Testament stories, uh, that's nothing to God. So we believe it as fact. It's presented in Scripture as an actual fact. If it was presented as a myth or an allegory, then, then we would say that's a myth or an allegory. Here it's presented as an actual fact. We take it as a fact. God struck these people with blindness, uh, and Elisha goes down to them. I just go back and say my job as a Christian, as a believer, is to not try and make myself believe the Bible. It's to say, I want to see what the Bible why these truths in the Bible are there for me and what's the application in my life and to God's world. It's what can I learn from God about the Bible, not do I want to say this is true and not and that's not true and, and all of that. My job as a Christian who's been saved by God, who's been given repentance and faith, who believes in, in, in Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord, then I can read the Bible and say, why is it there for me and for others? So they're stricken with blindness. They didn't have spiritual sight, but they didn't have physical sight anymore either. What do you think went through that mighty army? Conversations? I can't see. I can't see either. I can't see either. Now, we've seen all these science fiction movies. We would, we would come to conclusions, you know, and we would have all these things. Uh, in that day, uh, this would have been something new. What would they do? What happened? Were they scientific enough to say, well, maybe it's something in the atmosphere? What would you do? We'd almost start to think there was something supernatural going on, wouldn't we? But we wouldn't know what. And there they are, blind enough uh, where they could follow. They hear a friendly voice come down. And here's Elisha coming down to them then. And you can picture the servant walking along behind him going, what are you doing, man? This is crazy. Let's get out of here. Elisha goes down to them. And in their physical loss, while some of them might have been thinking spiritual thoughts, all we know is that they were once powerful, now they were pretty helpless. And a friendly voice saying to them, "Uh, follow me, the person you seek isn't here. Uh, Come along with me. Now what would you do? I think I would go with the group, and I would follow. And I would say, as quickly as this blindness came on, maybe it'll come off. I don't know what's going on, but here's somebody, and we we still can go, and maybe maybe the effects of whatever is here wears off there, but we'll go following this friendly voice. And so they followed him. One thing Elisha didn't do, he didn't say, hey, I'm the guy you're looking for. I'll give you some rope to tie me up, and you can still complete your mission. He wasn't that kind of friendly. He didn't have a death wish. 
he knew uh, it wasn't time to, to surrender. We don't just walk into death in order to get quickly to eternal life, do we? Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He accepted his captors. He talked about God. He wasn't rushing to death. But he was willing to die. Most early Christian martyrs in in our faith didn't put on a t-shirt that said, I'm a Christian, feed me to the lions and run to the enemy to be killed. They knew that God had power over lions if he wanted because they believed what God did with Daniel in the lion's den and, and lions could be stopped. I read that in history, those Christians that were martyred, uh, they were like the undercard in the arena because they didn't fight the lions. They didn't despair. They didn't show. uh, They were afraid nobody wants to be eaten by a lion, but they weren't like uh, some of these gladiator movies you see uh, where they find ingenious ways to fight and and, and give the crowd a show. Uh, That's our approach as Christians. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what today, tomorrow, the next day holds, but we are not overcome by fear of any of it. Whatever my God ordains is right, as we sang. So Elisha was not intimidated. He didn't have a death wish. He didn't run. He went and got those guys, and he said, Hey, follow me. I'll show you the guy who you seek. Well, he wasn't lying. He was the guy they were seeking. And they trudge, uh, some commentators say, about 10 miles or so into into Samaria. It was a a little bit of a hike, but not bad. And they got there. After Elisha saying in verse 18, this isn't the way, follow me and I'll bring you. Verse 20, as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, Open the eyes of these men that they may see. That's the third instance. And this is where physical sight was returned to God's enemies. And spiritual insight was also given to the king. So they're there. Now they can see. Their eyes are open. It says, so the Lord opened their eyes and they saw. And behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And now the king of Israel, who was part of God's people, but who was not godly, just as there are churches that claim God all the time, and there's people that sit in churches all the time that are not godly people. They're associated with God's people. They're like wheat and tares growing up together, uh, but they're not God's people. This king had a very, very worldly solution to the situation. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? Let me at them. Let me at them. Let me at them. Hold me back. I want to kill these people. These are our enemies. And what was the answer? Elisha said, you shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you've taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they, so which, which, He's saying, give him bread and water. I think a great feast is even better than that. So whatever he gave him, I don't know, but he gave him a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids to the land of Israel. A couple things to note. Note the power of prayer. God is sovereign over the means as well as the ends. Why pray if God can do everything? Because God says pray, and God uses your prayers. 
Uh, you see somebody in distress. Uh, somebody, uh, I was teaching one of my kids to drive, and we were driving around this parking lot like so many people do. I see it all the time. I go out and say, hey, I'm so glad you can use the parking lot. I taught my kids. You can set cones up here, and I just want to be welcoming to them like we're a friendly place that they can come. But we were here, but we saw somebody in the neighboring parking lot who needed a, t- a tire change. Uh, it was a woman by herself, and, and uh, she was trying to, she was in, in, in a little trouble. So I had this child with me, so I felt like it was good to stop. Now, we could have just said, hey, God help her, and been on our way. But God ordained, God wanted her to get her tire changed that day, and, and we were the means, as well as the ends. We, we were the ones God used. A God uses prayer in that same way. God can do whatever God wants to do. But God uses our prayers in some way that we don't understand. So you pray. You do. There's the power of prayer. Note here that the enemy soldiers now were at the complete mercy of God's people. Understand also that spiritual insight was given to the king through the prophet who was God's voice. If the world falls into the hands of the church, they better hope the church is godly. And in history, there have been times where the church uh, has not been godly. And people point to that and say, see, the church did this in history, the church did that. Well, they weren't godly people doing it. They might have done it in the name of the church, but they weren't doing God's work. And that's our only answer. People associated with God's people can live not godly. Sometimes wrongs done have been done out of fear, out of spiritual immaturity. Sometimes uh, God's people really blow it when they're not following God's way. Even people that say the right things and maybe sometimes even their hearts are right. You see a historic collapse, a rapid collapse of a church that has done good in the past where people have gotten saved and done right. And then you go, man, how did it fall so fast and so far? Either somebody was crooked and corrupt and brought scandal or they were just crooked and sinful and greedy and, and thought of themselves. Uh, maybe they just made a mistake and planned wrong. God's people can mess up. And this king, who was not godly, who wasn't thinking spiritually, who was thinking very carnally and earthly, said, shall I kill him? Shall I kill him? Shall I kill him? No, don't kill him. King said, if I kill him, I'll send a me- to solve a, uh, a problem. I'll send a lesson to everybody else. And and God's man said no. Remember, Elisha had already seen God's graciousness in a conversion. Elisha had seen in chapter 5, Naaman come down. And Naaman, uh, from the opposing army, and God heal him. And him get saved, essentially. Him say, I'm going to serve the God uh, who is the true God. Even to the point where he said, there's times when I go back after I've given my life to the true God where in my job, I'm going to have to go into the pagan temple. Will the true God forgive me if I have to go in there and escort the king? And Elisha said, you go in peace. And so he'd seen conversions, and so he saw something in these human beings uh, that was not worth just killing them off. Gave them a great feast and sent them away, and they stopped their raiding. Real fast before we get to our conclusions. Uh, 
the New Testament says something like this too. And this is good for us because forces are trying to get people to hate each other over politics, over approach to vaccinations, over race, over everything. And they're driving people apart. And Christians have to say we will not be haters. We can't be. We must not give in to hating. And uh, uh, this is something that was repeated in Romans chapter 12 after, uh, after Paul had written all about what salvation is. And he said this, Romans 12, 14 through uh, 21, which is a lot like giving a feast to your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And it leads right into this. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thoughts to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, and this is a direct uh, repeat of what we saw in our passage this morning. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And Elisha said, no, give them some food and send them on their way. And who knows, maybe some of them said, I'm going to worship that God down there, just like happened with uh, Naaman. So quickly, because we've got a little bit of a late start and we're headed to the table now, a couple of applications uh, to this text as we close. Where's the gospel in this passage? Where was someone Christ-like? Can you see a foreshadowing of Jesus? And you say, yes, you can, because we were the enemies of God. And God supernaturally intervened to save us. And God didn't give us what we deserved. He gave us grace and mercy. Salvation from Jesus is a gift. Nobody's ever earned it by being good enough. All of us have never earned it by being who we are. But God treated us not how we deserved, not even how we would treat God. Secondly, see God's sovereignty in the passage, the prayer for the eyes to be open, wanting it for others as well as for ourselves. It's God who opens prayers for blind eyes. We talked about that. Thirdly, finally, for Christians, because I think predominantly that would be this group. And we are Christians in a fearful time. And we see things circling around. And it's easy for us to say, what is going to happen? You know, have I saved enough for retirement? Ratcheted up by 10. Uh, What's going to happen? What's going to happen in this economy? What's going to happen in this world? What's going to happen when people start shooting each other and it escalates? And and we defend or don't defend. What's going to happen as we see the anger just welling up? And and, and what's going to happen? fearful. And we need to pray sometimes the prayer for ourselves that Elisha prayed for a servant. God, open our eyes. God, open our eyes. Listen to this. And this is, this is where we, we receive our encouragement before we go to the table. Psalm 34, 4 through 7. The psalmist said, 
I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. As long as you're looking to God, as long as you have that perspective, uh, then you're walking on water. It's when you look away that you get fearful and sink. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And you picture a, a campfire. I pictured it like a Western. I've been watching Westerns lately, reminiscing about watching Matt Dillon with Grandpa, I guess. But watching that. And so you are on the run, and there's a band of people that want you dead. But on one side, you got John Wayne sitting up all night to watch and see everything. And you've got Clint Eastwood and the old Spaghetti Westerns on this side. And you've got Matt Dillon over here. And you've got, got all these people around you watching. Uh, nothing's going to happen to you. You just uh, drink your coffee and eat your campfire food and, and pull up a rock and put a coat on it and lay down and go to sleep and sleep like a baby because the angel of the Lord is camping around you and nothing's going to touch you. Nothing can happen to you unless God in his great love and sovereignty and for the very best for you wants something to happen to you for God's great and good reason. But you are perfectly safe if you're in God. And you have a right to be fearful if you're not. Thank God that you are in God. Thank God for the table. Thank God for Jesus Christ on the cross and what he did for us and what we get to uh, see and taste and, and, and feel as we go to the table and, and, and understand what God has done for us. Let's do that. Let's pray first. Lord, thank you for your salvation for us. We thank you as we uh, come and do this in remembrance of you, as we think about uh, the sovereign uh, love and grace and movement to save us. Thank you for reminding us uh, through your scripture that if you gave us Jesus, you'll freely give us all things. Lord, we thank you that we can be Christians and that we are safe because we are Christians. In Jesus' name, amen. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered unto you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. He had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way also he took the cup after supper. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And this is for people who've been saved. This is not for sinless people because there's no such thing. But this is for people who are positionally sinless because Jesus Christ, our righteousness, has paid the price for us. So if you're a Christian, part of an uh, evangelical church, and you're a member in good standing in that church, this is for you. We'll, everybody's been served and will partake together. Uh, I do remind you that um, these, this colored cup is wine and the other cup is, is uh, grape juice. And um, we'll pray and set these elements aside for God's use. Lord, thank you for your word today. Thank you for your